American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about Irene Dunn, who was at the same time one of the greatest actresses Hollywood ever saw and a completely normal and down-to-earth wife and mother. Right. The remarkable thing about Irene Dunn was how normal her life was. She was a huge Hollywood star. But things like being a wife, a mother, a daughter, and a sister— and a devout Catholic were just part of who she was. And I must say at the outset, Noelle is going to fangirl a little bit on this episode. She is a classic movie junkie. If it's from earlier than 1965, she is all about it. So Irene Dunn is right in her wheelhouse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I like Hollywood before the 1960s. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this utterly ordinary, utterly iconic personage of the golden age of Hollywood. And let's start at the very beginning. Right. Not only because, as Julie Andrews would say, it's a very good place to start, but because for Irene Dunn, it's the key to her whole ordinary life. So Irene Dunn was born in 1898 in Louisville, Kentucky. Her parents were devout Catholics, and she was baptized and raised carefully in the faith. Her father, Joseph, was a steamboat engineer and inspector for the federal government. Her mother, Adelaide, was a concert pianist and a music teacher. Music and performance were part of her childhood. At five years old, she played Mustard Seed in a production of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. At 10, she went to the Loretto School in St. Louis, where she took part in special lessons in music and dramatics. And she was well prepared for it, she thought, because she had, after all, had that role as Mustard Seed five years prior. Yes, and that sort of simplicity seemed to characterize so much of her life. She absolutely loved her parents and always talked fondly of taking steamboat trips up and down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers with her father when she was very young. Later in life, she even said, No triumph of either my stage or screen career has ever rivaled the excitement of trips down the Mississippi on the riverboats with my father. Unfortunately, that ended all too soon. Yes, her father died of a kidney infection when she was just 11 years old. But the night before he died, he gave her advice that would stick with her the rest of her life. He said to her, happiness is never an accident. It is the prize we get when we choose wisely from life's great stores. It was quite a treasure to leave a little girl. Yes. And after her father's death, her mother moved with Irene and her younger brother, Charles, back to her hometown of Madison, Indiana, which is just about 40 miles up the Ohio River from Louisville. Irene grew up playing piano taught by her mother and and taking formal singing lessons, and it was all just a natural part of life in their house. The realization that a career of performance was the thing for her took place in her teens when she was paid $10 to sing with the Indianapolis Baptist Church Choir. She took that $10 and bought the thing she wanted most in the world, a brand new blue hat. And with that blue hat, she was hooked. She was hooked. She knew she wanted to perform. She first attended the Indianapolis Conservatory of Music before winning a scholarship to the Chicago Music College. She had a lovely soprano voice and hoped to make it with the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. She didn't make it in the audition, however, so she set her sights on musical theater, debuting on Broadway in 1922. She spent five years on Broadway and with some touring shows before the break that would take her to Hollywood took place. And like that first realization that a career in show business involved a blue hat, 
This big break also featured a blue hat. Right. In 1927, she was wearing a blue hat when she got onto an elevator and then realized she was sharing that elevator with Florence Ziegfeld, the Broadway innovator who, among other things, had been producing his Ziegfeld Follies for nearly 20 years by this point. Done instead of this experience, any young girl aspiring to a theatrical career held Florence Ziegfeld in awe. When I found myself riding in a lift with the great showman, I was much too frightened even to look at him, much less get off on the same floor. Imagine my surprise when a few minutes later I discovered a young woman calling after me. Stop, stop, she called. Mr. Ziegfeld wants you. The girl in the blue hat. And shortly after that encounter, Dunn was cast in the lead role of Magnolia in the national touring production of Ziegfeld's groundbreaking Broadway musical, Showboat. It was while starring as Magnolia that Dunn was spotted by Hollywood talent scouts, and so, in 1930, she moved from coast to coast. But we skipped one other important event of her time in New York. She got married. Yes. In 1927, she married a dentist named Francis Griffin. They were happily married, but he did not move west with her immediately when she had her break in 1930. They did, however, buy a plot of land in Holmby Hills, which borders Beverly Hills. They bought their plot for $10,000 and built a two-story house on it for $40,000. That $50,000 combined in 1930 is equal to about $778,000 today. So, not a small amount, but compared to what properties go for near zip code 90210 nowadays, that's very modest. Her mother and her brother actually moved out with her while Frances stayed back in New York for a time. And her mother, until her death in 1951 remained a prayerful, centering force in Irene's life. And the thing about this two-story house, which had no swimming pool or tennis court or fountain or elaborate gatehouse or any of those other things associated with the mansions of the rich and famous, is that Irene and Francis would call this house home for the rest of their lives. Right. Francis moved out to be with Irene in Hollywood in 1936, and he lived there until he died in 1965. Then Irene lived there until she died in that house in 1990. And this speaks to something I really love about Irene Dunn, and we'll see some more of it in the stories that are coming. But this is just a great example. She's just so down to earth and didn't live like we always expected Hollywood stars to live. She was hugely successful, but she lived in one modest house, had the same one husband who was a dentist. And they were married for 38 years until his death. It's actually funny. Later in life, after she wrote a biography of the glorious Gloria Swanson, she said, I'll never have to write my memoirs now after reading this. She had six husbands, at least six lovers. Why, my life is so dull compared to hers. I've had one husband, one daughter, one house, and no lovers. There was something else about her. Her wit and brilliance and delivery weren't just displayed in lines she delivered on the screen, they were her own sense of humor and impeccable timing. Yes. No less a figure than Cary Grant, with whom she starred in a number of movies, said of her ability, quote, When you think you've got a scene going and it's all yours, Irene can just move a finger or an eye or give a nod of her head and steal it. She was such a versatile and talented actress. She starred in a range of films from drama, melodramas, musicals, and a bunch of really funny screwball comedies, which I just absolutely love her in. The comedies can really require even greater skill to pull off as an actress. Yes, she made her big screen debut in 1930 in Leathernecking, and then her very next film, Cimarron, released in 1931, saw her nominated for an Academy Award, her first nomination. But she didn't win. She would star in five films in 1931, 
three in 1932, five again in 1933, four in 1934, and in 1935, she got lazy, only starring in two. But one of them, Roberta, had her co-star with Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, and Randall Scott. And in that movie, she sang the song Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which many more people probably know from the 1959 version done by the Platters. So she was making it, but it was 1936 when her star really took off. That year, she was cast to reprise her role of Magnolia in the Hollywood production of Showboat, that Ziegfeld produced Broadway hit she had toured with seven years earlier. This role got the attention of Henry Feldman, who wanted to cast Dunn as the lead in his new film, Theodora Goes Wild. The thing about this film was that it was a light screwball comedy, and Dunn had only up to this point done dramas, so she wasn't sure she wanted to take the chance and do a comedy. In addition, she didn't like the script, she didn't like the leading man, and she didn't like the director. So she literally ran away, taking her husband, their adopted daughter, and the whole household to France for a time, telling her agent she wouldn't come back until that film was recast without her. The producer, Henry Cohen, exploded, refusing to recast the film, saying she could stay in Paris until she rotted, and he didn't care if she never worked in films again. Her agent, Charlie Feldman, managed to convince her to come back and do the film. Thank goodness. Yeah, it's a good thing that she did come back because it changed her career and her life. She was nominated for her second Academy Award, again without a win, and it launched her as one of the leading comedians of Hollywood. It is a classic, and you haven't shown it to me yet. I haven't? No. Well, it's on our shelf. We're going to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so her career really took off in this year, 1936, and this was when her husband, Francis, gave up his dentistry practice in New York and finally moved west where he became her business manager. This is actually a significant point. Dunn became one of the first actors in Hollywood to break out of the studio system where actors and actresses were signed to a particular studio and could not act in films produced by other studios. She demanded non-exclusive contracts and got them. And she was such a good actress, studios couldn't blackball her for fighting them. From this point on, nearly everything she touched turned to gold. In 1937, she was nominated for a third Academy Award when she starred with Cary Grant in The Awful Truth. Then in 1938, another Oscar nomination came for Love Affair, in which she co-starred with Charles Boyer. And that film, many people probably know the remake better, 1957's An Affair to Remember, starring Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. Both films are definitely worth watching. She actually starred multiple times alongside Charles Boyer and Cary Grant. Grant actually said she was the finest comedian he had ever worked with, calling her a mistress of timing and touch. And Cary Grant worked with all the major actresses of his day. She also starred with William Powell in Life with Father and with Rex Harrison in Anna and the King of Siam. Her fifth and final Academy Award nomination came in 1948 for I Remember Mama, which was released when she was 50 years old. Once again, she did not take home the Oscar. No, in 1952, she starred in her final film, It Grows on Trees. She was not nominated for this film, and she retired from film acting after completing it. She is widely regarded as the greatest actress never to win an Academy Award. The next phase of her life saw her focus on charitable activities and Republican politics. Yes, as mentioned, when Francis moved west in 1936, bringing their recently adopted daughter, he took over as her business manager, which included managing her investments. And a shrewd investor he was. With his help, Dunn became an incredibly wealthy woman. At one point, Francis and Irene invested in a Beverly Hills hotel owned by a friend. Others who invested in this hotel included Jimmy Stewart and his wife, Gloria, 
and Irene's good friend Loretta Young, who was also incidentally a devout Catholic. When the friend sold the hotel, the others pulled their investments. Irene, however, stuck with it, and when she finally realized her investment, her original $200,000 had ballooned to a massive $10 million. And from her wealth, she was very generous with charity. Her two favorite charities were St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica and the Motion Picture Country House, which is a retirement community for those who worked in the film industry but who find themselves in need of a place to stay later in life. Yeah, she was incredibly generous in supporting others, but the stories of her own frugality are remarkable. Yeah. In 1957, due to her activism in Republican politics, President Dwight Eisenhower named her a delegate to the United Nations General Assembly. Loretta Young asked her who was going to dress her, and she replied, well, I suppose I am. I'll take what I have here. Young basically said, oh, honey, no, you must have a look. And she prevailed upon Dunn to allow a designer to create a wardrobe for her. Dunn admitted afterward that she appreciated looking as good as anyone in New York. And this story isn't quite frugality, but it's along those lines. In the late 1970s, William Fry was producing Airport 77, which called for an older actress. But it would require that actress to get water dumped on her a whole lot. Joel Stein, who was the big boss at MCA and Universal Studios at the time, suggested that Fry ask Dunn. Fry said, no, he couldn't ask Dunn to do that. She'd been retired for 20 years. Stein, who was aware of Dunn's penchant for philanthropy, said that rather than offering her a salary, Fry should offer to make a $200,000 donation to St. John's Hospital and to give her a new Rolls Royce every year for 10 years. Fry complied and offered the role to Dunn. Dunn was intrigued enough to read through the script, but when they talked the next day, she declined. Fry asked if she didn't like the script. And she said no, she loved the script, but she just couldn't do it. Fry said, why not? And she said, well, I don't like Rolls Royces. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows if that really was the reason she turned it down. But to me, after seeing how she could deadpan an unexpected line, it's just funny. Yeah. In 1985, about the time she received a Kennedy Center honor, she gave away part of her secret. She said, comedy was easy for me. Carrie, that is Carrie Grant, paid me one of the loveliest compliments of my life. He said I had the best timing of anyone he ever worked with. It must be something that comes naturally to you. My father had a keen sense of humor, and I think it is different from having a sense of humor. So between father's great advice the night before he died and the example of his keen sense of humor, plus her mother's instruction in music and performance, plus the foundation in the Catholic faith that she got from both of them, Dunn was very much prepared for a life of success in Hollywood and happiness at home. And it came naturally to her. She actually said once, how do I remain what is called normal? Because for me, it's the natural thing to do, and therefore easier than doing something else. Another quote that just fits her personality and her approach to stardom was... It doesn't hurt any of us to remember that Hollywood isn't at all impressed by anyone who has the fantastic illusion that the town must revolve around him. And that's a notion that a lot of stars could stand to hear. Yes. Uh, One more story. This one involves her and Francis's house. One morning, she dressed in simple clothes. She had plenty of them and put on some sunglasses and went and took one of the bus tours that drives around the Beverly Hills area so tourists can gape and gawk at the huge houses of the movie stars. No one recognized her, naturally. At dinner that night, a friend asked her why she would do that. She said, I just wanted to hear what they had to say, especially about my house. We passed Zsa Zsa Gabor's house and Eva Gabor's and Francis and Edgar Bergen's, all of them. Only about half of what they said was true, but it was fun. 
Oh, gosh. There are so many other humorous and sweet stories of Irene Dunn that we came upon while researching this episode that we really hope people will look up the show notes and go read them, especially the article entitled Everyone Loved Irene, written by William Fry and Vanity Fair back in March of 2004. Irene Dunn was honored by the Kennedy Center in 1985 alongside Merce Cunningham, Bob Hope, Beverly Sills, Alan J. Lerner, and Frederick Lowe. That's quite a crew. But while in Washington, D.C. for the gala, Irene became ill. Her good friends Ronald and Nancy Reagan, fellow Hollywood Republican activists who had, you might say, risen in the ranks in the D.C. area, saw to it that Irene had the best medical care. She spent a week in Georgetown Hospital where her condition became so grave that she received the last rites. She recovered, however, and was able to return to Hollywood, but she didn't do much after that. In September of 1990, Irene Dunn passed away in the home she and Francis had built in 1930. After her death, she was covered with her Dames of Malta robe, black with the white cross, and in her hand was placed the amethyst rosary, her favorite rosary, which was always near her bed. In 1951, she wrote a lengthy article about her own faith life in which she said, in part, quote, Now I am no theologian, no scholar, not even a writer. I ask myself, how can I find a simple, uncomplicated, sincere way of telling others about the richness, satisfaction, and joy that my religion brings to my life, so that they too may desire to open the door and let God in? Then it occurred to me, it was something like seeing your friends for the first time since you returned from a wonderful trip. Let's call this a heavenly trip. You had such a glorious time. You've already sent postcards saying, wish you were here. If you have the gift of words, your description of the place will make them want to go. She closed by saying, out of my heart and my own experience, I know that God has infinite treasure to bestow. The joy and peace of mind that accompany love of God and faith in him are beyond the power of words. Because of my religion, I know that I have lived a richer, fuller, more satisfying life than would have been possible without it. With all its hardships, the journey is worthwhile. Faith is a wonderful resort. How I wish you were here, if you've missed it. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and a review. To learn more about today's topic, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com slash history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at sqpn. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.